Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, welcome to the start of a brand new month. It's Friday the 1st of March, this is Peter Lewis, welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk with an update on the business news from across Asia. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, US inflation fell to 2.4% in the year to January, according to the metric most closely watched by the Federal Reserve, bolstering expectations of rate cuts this year. The annual personal consumption expenditure price index in the US slowed to the slowest rate since February 2021, from 2.6% in the previous month, and matching economists' forecasts of 2.4%. The Indian economy expanded by a surprising 8.4% year-on-year in the fourth quarter. That's the strongest growth since the second quarter of 2022, compared to an upwardly revised 8.1% in Q3, and surging past economists' forecasts of 6.6%. GDP figures for the previous two quarters were revised to above 8% as well, and the government's estimate for the 2023-2024 fiscal year growth rate was revised higher to 7.6% from 7.3%, keeping India on track to remain the fastest expanding major economy in the world. The Biden administration will investigate whether Chinese electric vehicles can pose a national security threat to the United States as they can collect huge amounts of personal information and may send it overseas. On Thursday, President Biden directed the US Commerce Department to determine what measures his administration should take to prevent China from undermining national security through the export of connected vehicles. Hong Kong exchanges and clearing reported a 13% fall in profits for the fourth quarter on the back of subdued trading and fewer new listings. Average daily turnover for equities, a key driver of revenues, dropped 29% year-on-year to 80.4 billion Hong Kong dollars, even after Hong Kong's government took special measures to boost market liquidity. HKEX had 73 new listings in 2023 that raised the equivalent of nearly 6 billion US dollars. That was down roughly 56% from total equity funds raised in IPOs in 2022 and 86% lower than 2021 levels. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities, and Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. And I'd love to hear from you with your questions or comments. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street's Thursday, US stocks closed higher in the first positive leap day since the year 2000. The major indices ended February with their fourth straight monthly gain. The S&P 500 rose half a percent to end at a record high of 5,097. It was up 5.2% for the month of February. All 11 S&P 500 sectors finished February in the green. The Dow ticked higher by 0.1% to 38,996. It was up 2.1% last month. The Nasdaq Composite closed at a new record high for the first time since the 19th of November 2021, adding 0.9% to close at 16,092, and it was up 6.1% for the month of February. 
U.S. government bond yields were steady following the release of January's inflation figures, which were roughly in line with economists' forecasts. The two-year yield fell one basis point to 4.64%. The yield rose 43 basis points in total. In February, the 10-year yield dropped two basis points to 4.25%, leaving it 32 basis points higher than where it started the month. Sticky inflation prints sent 2024 rate cut expectations tumbling from over six cuts at the start of the month to less than four cuts at the end and traders are pricing in a 64% chance of the first reduction taking place in June. The US dollar index survived an initial sell-off to end the session up 0.2% at 104.12. The index was up 0.6% in total in February. The yen strengthened after BOJ board member Takata said Japan's economy is at an inflection point and achievement of the price target is coming into sight. The US dollar slipped half a percent against the yen to 149.94 and the dollar gained 2.1% against the yen last month. In Shanghai in February, the dollar was a third of a percent firmer against the yuan at 7.1877 renminbi. Gold hit a one-month high on Thursday. Spot gold was up half a percent at $2,045 an ounce and for the month overall, spot gold added 0.3%. Crude oil futures notched a second consecutive monthly gain. The April Brent contract fell 0.1% to settle at $83.62 a barrel and Brent gained 2.3% for the month. Bitcoin, that added 2.4% on Thursday to $62,260, taking its gains for the month to over 46%. China's stock market notched the largest gains among Asia's major benchmark indices on Thursday. The CSI 300 rose 1.9% and the index surged 9.4% in February, making it the month's best-performing global stock market. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng surrendered an early gain of 1% and fell 25 points or 0.2% to finish at 16,511. And for the month of February, the Hang Seng was up 6.6%. That's its best monthly gain since January. January 2023. Looks like it's going to give up a little bit of that at the market open this morning. Futures projecting a decline of about 40 points for the Hang Seng to 16,470. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's it's a Friday morning, as always on a Friday, just before the weekend, we hear the cheery sound of Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Hi, good morning. And also we have with us the equally cheery Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Morning to you, Tim. Good morning, Peter. Well, I'm interested to get both your thoughts on the budget. In Paul Chan's budget, he said Hong Kong's uh, economy is expected to grow 25 to 3.5% this year. And he announced measures to bolster the flagging property market and support the economy. The fiscal year's budget deficit is going to soar above $100 billion due to slower than expected economic growth and lower than expected revenue from land premium and stamp duty. The record government deficit has led to a slashing of the scale of one-off relief measures and new or raised taxes in the latest budget. And among the most notable measures announced on Wednesday, Hong Kong's going to raise the tax on high earners and scrap all property cooling measures. So first of all, Francis, let me get your overall thoughts on the budget. Is it going to be a budget that's going to boost economic growth? 
Well, not really, but uh, I think for the property uh, market measures, I think the lifting the uh, restrictive measures, uh, uh, they are a good step toward the normalcy in the property market. I think there's been much too much control uh, on the property market. Now is uh, the time to let the uh, market forces to uh, to 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 really uh, boost the uh, market now, I think uh, 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 the property prices have fallen to a such a level that I think many people can afford to buy a flat now, and uh, some people might might want to buy a second flat for investment. So I think uh, this is a good step. But uh, there's still a, a deficit of 100 billion, and the government uh, took the debt uh, 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 measure, uh, uh, way to solve the budget deficit, just issue more debt. It's, it's like uh, most uh, Western countries uh, sell more debt. Uh, and, and, and I hope this is only a temporary measure. But I, th- I think in the long term, the government really need to think uh, about shrinking the civil service and the uh, public sector's uh, 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 percentage of the economy. I think uh, the public sector account for something like 25% of the economy. This is really much too big. I think uh, uh, years ago, one uh, British uh, MP came to Hong Kong and said, wow, why do you have 200,000 civil servants in a city like this? You should have no more than 60,000 civil servants. I think uh, uh, the uh, Hong Kong government would w- would be best served if they hire uh, some uh, consultants from the British government, try, try how to privatize government services and shrink the civil service. Mm, okay, well, we'll get back to some of those points um, in a moment. But first, Tim, let's get your thoughts on it. Was was this a pro business um, budget? Does it does it help businesses like yours? Well, Peter, I mean, he didn't have a lot of room to manoeuvre, did he? And when you're playing around with that deficit, uh, you really you can't give things away. And I think that it probably didn't appeal to uh, uh, a lot of people. There wasn't a lot for the middle classes in it. Was it a pro business budget? Um, not really. I think uh, looking at cutting back on things, I mean, uh, Francis mentioned there about the civil service and, I mean, maybe maintain zero growth in civil service establishments probably isn't going far enough at this stage. Uh, postponing Lantau tomorrow, well, most of us have always thought that was a good idea to postpone that. Uh, and... Uh, and reducing current government expenditure by another 1%. You know, we, we, we've still got an overburdened civil service. Is it good for business? Is it going to attract more business? In many ways, Hong Kong has got to rediscover its, uh, its USP, and that's down to the individuals in companies, in markets. It's down to all of us to attract people to come and visit here, set up businesses here. Uh, and a lot of that is actually going to come from the people in the front line as opposed to government incentives. So, uh, as I say, I don't think he had a lot of room to manoeuvre. Uh, I mean, that that is a, from, for those of us who have lived here a long time and uh, always used to a massive surplus every budget and everybody saying, I'll give it away. If anything, this has shown the prudence of actually building up our rainy day fund, mm. which 
over the last few years, boy, have we cashed in on that. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm sort of still sort of in slight shock of the figures for India you gave out earlier. And so, <laughs> you know, if only. When, when did we think? When, when did we think we'd be looking enviously on us, India, for their growth, which is phenomenal and great? And you know, we, we we've got to get back to uh, to what made Hong Kong really really great in the first place. And uh, yeah, every individual industry has got to actually uh, do it. The shipping industry, we, I mean, okay, there are all, there's the usual uh, round of things. Uh, I, I always worry whenever they say a feasibility study will be t- undertaken. Uh, I mean, how many times have we heard that? Not a lot comes out of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, um, I mean, we've got green bunkering. They want us all to run our ships on methanol. I mean, again, that you sort of felt, oh dear, is that really, really hitting the point? I mean, there's not many methanol-powered ships. There's not many methanol-powered ships on order. It's only one option in terms of the fuel flow. I mean, yes, it might reduce our carbon footprint, but I think we'll more than make up with a monthly firework display in terms of uh, pollution. <laughs> uh, so I'm, um, yeah. You're a little bit disappointed by the sounds well, of no, it. Well, no, I'm not disappointed because I'm, I'm always, you know, for those of us who have lived here a long time, and, you know, you've been in the UK quite a bit, I mean, we're still a phenomenal place to be in mm. terms of taxation. I mean, that increase in personal taxation, that's not going to put people off living here. Mm. Okay, well, I want to get on to that as well, talk about that a little bit more. Let, let me ask you both, Francis, let me ask you first. Have we got to get back to a more laissez-faire style of economy that we used to have, where businesses yeah. made decisions, businesses decided where investment was going to be? If we need a firework yeah. display every month, then you know yeah. there will be one because people yeah. will do it. It doesn't need the government to say, this is where you need to go and open your offices. This is the area of Hong Kong where you need to build your business. This is what sort of tourist events we need to have. Is the government intervening too much, Francis? We need to get back to allowing uh, the economy to find its own way. Yeah, I think definitely. I think uh, 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 Hong Kong is too dependent on China now. I think uh, uh, virtually all the trade uh, uh, tied to China directly or indirectly. And then you have the growth in civil service. First, you have the uh, responsible officers and then you have the uh, deputy directors and all that and and and, and even the the uh, the politicians the uh, political parties uh, look to the government for handouts mm. uh, uh, t- take an example uh, even science park and and uh, uh, most of the most of the enterprises uh, uh, the uh, cannot survive more than one year without government subsidy, and uh, 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 the government pours so much money into it. I think uh, since time is the only uh, uh, unicorn we have, and of course it's not really doing well now. But it, it really shows that uh, we we just haven't achieved the the kind of uh, 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 performance or the achievement of some some places like Silicon Valley, mm. where they 
where they manage to produce huge companies. I think uh, this actually, this is the same story with uh, governments in East Asia, uh, maybe except Taiwan. Malaysia and Singapore pours a lot of money into developing high-tech industries, but they got nothing to show for. Mm. Hong Kong has only one sense time to show for. <laughs> so I think uh, 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 I think the government can save a lot of money uh, uh, by uh, withdrawing all this support. But of course, I, I, I would be better by, by all these uh, uh, high-tech uh, advocates. Hmm. So, Tim, it's, it's an interesting point, isn't it? The government has poured billions into the technology sector and to try and make Hong Kong an IT&T harbour centre of innovation. Billions over the last few years um, have gone into it. But as Francis says, we've only produced one unicorn since, since time out of that. It sort of suggests, doesn't it, that this, this money is not going to the right places. It's not going into productive areas of investment that are really going to help the economy. So what's going wrong? Well, I think that the way that money is distributed, uh, there is often not a lot of, uh, it's not, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of thought goes into it, but it doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. Uh, and as I said, uh, you know, we've had loads of feasibility studies and committees and everything looking at it. I think often they look backwards. They look at trying to copy what has gone on in the past and what is done in other countries. And they're not actually looking at uh, Hong Kong's, you know, unique position and what made Hong Kong strong in the past. Now, I think that, um, I mean, Francis, I, I totally agree with him that we we are too dependent on mainland China. I mean, we, you know, if you look over in Shenzhen, and uh, I mean, that's a, a home to plenty of unicorns. Uh, and Shenzhen is also now, of course, uh, the place where if, I mean, if the, financial secretary had distributed more consumption vouchers, uh, then you'd probably find that they'd be spent in Shenzhen rather than in Hong Kong. So um, <laughs> that was a really positive thing about the budget. Uh, so I think, uh, yes, we've got to actually look beyond Hong Kong borders. We've got so many things here that we are good at, that we are world renowned at. And uh, and that's where we've really got to be, got to be playing up to it. You know, our financial sector, uh, uh, our pillar industries, uh, they, they, you know, we've got to really enhance those rather than trying to do things that, that copy other countries, but which we're not particularly good at. Mm. So let's just focus on what we're good at uh, and and try and stimulate the growth there. But it's going to be difficult. I mean, this, you know, those those figures are pretty grim reading, and it's going to take quite a long time to get us back on our feet. But mm. it's if we all pull together, we've got a fighting chance. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit more about that, because if you look at those budget numbers, I mean, the deficit is not going to go away next year. And although the, um, the financial secretary said it's going to go down to $40 billion, that's a bit of a, a con, really, because that's after we borrowed lots of money, um, raised loads of money in infrastructure bonds. So the deficit is actually still there. Francis, is there a risk here that we're just going to end up with deficits for many years to come unless something <laughs> changes, unless the government takes a different approach, whether it to be uh, to, to cut spending or whether it to be to find new ways of raising revenue, broadening the tax base. It, it seems clear, doesn't it, that we can't just carry on doing the same thing now year after year because we're going to have run uh, deficit spending for, for quite a while to come. 
Well, don't worry. As soon as the property market pick up and the government... That's what the government hopes. ...pieces of land to cover the deficits. And, uh, of course, uh, I think cutting uh, useless expenditure is also one way. I think I think we can forget about the uh, land town reclamation. I think that is that... Uh, there is that on uh, arrival. There's no need to uh, spend billions and billions. We, we of can't dollars. afford it, can we? We can't afford it. Wow, it doesn't make sense at all. I mean, I, I sort of mentioned about um, you know the green economy and everything. In terms of protecting the environment, postponing Lantau tomorrow is probably the biggest uh, statement made in this budget. So, mm. you know, congratulations to the financial sector in doing that. That's probably his big environmental contribution. Mm. He, he, did he actually say it was cancelled? He sort of, he said postponed. it was going to be postponed, wasn't it? So, yeah. But I think we can assume, can't we, that... That's always uh, the first step. Yeah, that it's going to be cancelled. <laughs> but uh, do yeah. you worry, Tim, that we're going to be running budget deficits for, for way into the future unless we do something? Um, you know, the, the government doesn't seem to want to allow the land, the property market, to find its natural level. It won't sell land below the last sale price. So we're not going to find out. Um, it's not prepared to let prices fall. So if it carries on like that, it's still not going to be able to raise enough money next year and the year after. Yeah, I mean, yes, I do worry about long-term deficits. Uh, but of course, in Hong Kong, we've always run at such a massive surplus. We've been in the envy of the world for years. Mm. Uh, but uh, yes, this, this is not how you run a business at a deficit. I'm not saying that Hong Kong is a business. We're a, uh, a city, we're a community, uh, and there's a yeah, well, but is that good for the people who choose to make Hong Kong their home and where they want to base their businesses to be living in a place that's got a massive deficit? I mean, you know, this is nothing compared to what, uh, say, London runs at. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it is Hank, getting that deficit under control is obviously going to be a key part. It's possible. I mean, you know, we've still got a lot of positive things here, but um, the financial secretary. I, I think this was uh, it was a it was a he couldn't really do much more in terms of uh, reining things in. And if he does go with uh, curbing the growth in the civil service and reducing recurrent government expenditure, you know, then great. He's beginning to lead by example. And that's what we need. You could tell he was struggling to balance the budget, really, couldn't you? Because he was giving yeah. out with one hand and taking back with the other. I mean, you take the, for example... Oh, it's good biblical stuff. Yeah, yeah. you take the tourism sector. He was handing out $1 billion uh, to support mm. tourism, but then he's going to raise um, the... restart the the accommodation tax and charge 3% yeah. on hotels. It's sort of like the two don't go together, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> and this is it with tourism. I mean, I, I really hope that you know, I'd love to see more tourists back here and more of the high-end tourists who are actually putting the money into the economy uh, and uh, and getting getting Hong Kong back on its feet. But I really hope they go about doing this properly. I mean, let's have a... Pro when they say we're going to build a new Hong Kong tourism brand, I mean, you go, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, you know, Happy Hong Kong was not the world's greatest promotion. Uh, let's get some proper global people in who know how to brand a city mm. and to market tourism. And, you know, let's go back at those campaigns we had in the mid-90s. Asia's really World City. 
Exactly. They were Let's good. Let's just get back to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can do it because we've done it in the past. Let's do that again. Francis, what's your prognosis? Why aren't tour- well, the tourists are coming to Hong Kong and the, the numbers have picked up, but they're still below pre-pandemic levels. And also it seems to be the, the nature of the tourist has changed, hasn't it? Tourists are coming on yeah. budget packages now, spending far less than they used to. Yeah. How do we get Hong Kong's mojo back in the tourism sector? That, that is really a, a, a very tall task because of uh, uh, steady inflation and the high price of land. Hong Kong is not a cheap destination now. The uh, hotel rates are really sky high. And then the food is not cheap. Of, of course, the only good thing you can say is that Hong Kong, Hong Kong is much cheaper than Singapore. <laughs> but... Mm. but it's uh, twice as 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 expensive as Samjan uh, uh, or even more. So, so so that's why it's difficult and very tough to attract uh, high spending tourists tourists, unless you open casinos here. But of course, Macau has a monopoly on casinos. Uh, that, that's not what you can do. But. I've, I, but but I still think that at least you can make the Northland town uh, a beach like Coca Cabana and a few <laughs> more tourists there and so, attract more uh, uh, Northerners to, to to spend their vacation in Hong Kong. So we're going to become the Rio of Asia, are we? Is that yeah? <laughs> but the, the problem is even. Well, Hong- but the trouble is even Hong Kong people don't want to visit Hong Kong. They're all going off to Shenzhen at the weekend. So it's sort of That's like... the problem. I mean, the Shenzhen has picked up, I mean, the quality of everything there. I mean, this is, I mean, it's been one of the most remarkable developments, really, certainly in my lifetime. And you've seen it go from being uh, a sort of farming community to being a, a really cool metropolis i mean it's clean i mean it's way ahead of hong kong in development of electric buses and everything like that uh the quality of the food and everything and then it's great value so Mm. yeah we we've got to find something that differentiates ourselves from that attraction over there i mean reading the papers the weekend somebody say oh yes i've been to shenzhen 10 times in the last three months i mean that's phenomenal Mm. uh i mean so we've We've got to get the people back on the streets. I, mean, I find increasingly there are people coming back to Hong Kong, maybe haven't been here for three or four years, and they're all saying, wow, it's great. Uh, and, they, and they really enjoy it when they get here. Unfortunately, I mean, if you're in the States or you're in the UK or something, and you say, oh, I'm going to Hong Kong, people say, oh, is it safe? And we've still got a lot of uh, repair work to do on our reputation. And that is very much down. I mean, you're fine, we will have government campaigns, but again, it's back down to those of us who actually live here. They actually say, "Let's uh, let come come and see us. This place is a great place." And I, I know quite a few people who have uh, relocated from Hong Kong back to Britain, and uh, and the, and they and they've said, "I think I want to come back." So. <laughs> Mm. Okay, but Francis, what do you make of the tax increases? I know now that the tax increase on high earners is small, isn't it? It's going up from fifteen percent to sixteen percent if you earn more than uh, five million Hong Kong dollars. So it's only going to 
capture a small number of people. Paul Chan says 0.6% of taxpayers. But I wonder just how symbolic this is, because it's the first tax increase now in over two decades. Is this also a symbol, maybe a bad symbol, of, of what's going wrong? It may be the thin end of the wedge, because once you start <laughs> raising taxes, they tend not to stop going up, do they? Yeah, well, uh, many people have said that the the tax structure in Hong Kong is a welfare for the rich. In the mm-hmm. Western countries, they they always pay the high earners pay thirty uh, percent or more, even fifty percent or more in Scandinavian countries. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, even sixteen percent is still very low. It only affects about uh, 10,000 people in Hong Kong. But uh, 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 but, but at least Hong Kong is still a, fr- a business-friendly uh, 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 city. Uh, taxes are low, and then we don't try to tax everything. We don't have a sales tax, and we don't have a, a capital gains tax, I think. Uh, as long as we keep that, I think we can still uh, maintain the, the reputation of being a, a low tax area. Uh, of course, the, the worry is that once you start it, that, and then you have a progressive tax rate, uh, increase uh, the, 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 the tax rate to 20% for the super rich. Hmm. But then for the super rich, they don't have income. They only have assets and uh, some... Some social workers are talking about taxing the wealth. You see, for the past 16 years, the uh, the richest uh, 100 people increased their wealth by 100 times mm. because the, the 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 from the appreciation of the stock holding. <laughs> I I think if if you're a tax man, you look for revenue. You 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 should look for. Uh, capital appreciation from the stock market. Tim, is it, is it a worry? Should we be concerned? Yeah, it's always a worry because, I mean, it's when you get the uh, finance departments of government sort of saying, OK, where where is their low-hanging fruit? Uh, and, um, you know, it is always one of the beauties of Hong Kong that we have a low and simple tax system. I mean, it's only when you get back and you relocate to the UK that you suddenly find out there's a tax at every turn. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and you're just going to get absolutely hammered. So keeping it simple, keeping it low, is that's that's really important because that's one of the attractions for businesses and individuals coming to Hong Kong. But certainly, um, yes, I mean, as Francis pointed out, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to go from being rich to being really rich than it is to become rich in the first place. <laughs> I want to delve into this more, but not not yeah. today. We haven't got time for that, but uh, that's an interesting conversation we can have. Francis, I'm going to get your thoughts on the markets before we yeah. wrap up. At last, we've had some good news, haven't we? The, Shang, uh, the CSI 300 up 9.4% in February, the world's best performing um, equity market. So is the bottom in? Well, uh, the, the, the rally in February was due to only one factor, government intervention. I mm. think the government asked the, uh, the fund managers to buy ETF, 
and uh, and it's really an artificial boost in the market. And you can see on the Wednesday, the market dropped 250 points because the lack of uh, government support. So the 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 foundation of the, the of the market is still very weak, and without government support, it will all come crashing down to the fifteen thousand level. I think uh, fifteen thousand is the natural support level now, and uh, I think the government need to keep on buying, uh, otherwise the the rally in February will be only short lived only temporary. And it seems to be the government's blaming quant funds, these sort of electronic trading <laughs> funds, firms for bringing the market down. They're banning them from operating, getting them to wind up their products, fining them, stopping them from trading. Yeah. This seems to be the target. Was Is that fair? Is it is it the fault of quant funds? That, that's, that's totally unfair. I think you, you should not, the government should not meddle in the market. Uh, so much, but 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 you, you know the Chinese government. Well, they they, they just cannot refrain from uh, intervening in the market. It's in their nature to do it. I think. Uh, what what can you do uh, for uh, being a uh, a centralized economy like China? But uh, but uh, they will continue to do it. But the underlying factor factor is. If the uh, economy, uh, Chinese economy, is not really humming along, not growing uh, at a spectacular rate, uh, the stock market will not will not rise, mm-hmm. and that is the underlying factor for the for the uh, weakness in the chi- in China and Hong Kong stock market for the past four years, and uh, unless you can improve that. You you really have to depend on government support to lift to help stabilize the market, and that is not a good thing. Tim, are you are you feeling the the boost of confidence that that this rebound is is giving to to the economy overall or to the consumer? Is there any benefit from it? Uh, down at an everyday level, no. I don't think I've seen any sort of uh, great rebound. I think I think I mean Hong Kong is so dominated by property uh, i think that you know there will be confidence uh, uh, restored after the easing of the cooling measures uh but um you know and people will look at their mpf accounts and obviously mm-hmm. consider how the stock market's doing there and probably still be pretty depressed uh so it's we've got a long way to go but yeah. but i'm actually confident that we'll get there oh, okay well that's a good I, note i have confidence in hong kong Good note to end on. Uh, Good note to end the day and the week. Thank you both very much. You heard there Tim Huxley, who is chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. We've had the long-awaited inflation data out of the US. Well, only waited for a month, but it seemed like a long time. US inflation fell to 2.4%. That's according to the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index. So down from 2.6% in the previous month, matched what economists were expecting. Um, We're slowly getting there, aren't we, to to this 2% uh, target by the sounds of it. Do you think the Fed is going to be happy with this? I don't think I'd be unhappy with it, but uh, as you say, we're we're slowly heading towards uh, the target range. So 
towards that 2% um, level. Um, and interestingly, the PCE always is slightly under the CPI figure for various reasons, but 2.8 uh, is still too high. I think the Fed, it's in line with the expectations, so I don't think the Fed will be surprised or will need to change anything in terms of their language immediately on it. Um, so, yeah, but I think we've talked about this before. It's that, you know, it's, it, it's that last um, bit of stickiness in inflation that's going to be the most challenging to, to remove. So the chances of it getting below two in a hurry is, is becoming less and less, mm. short of a major um, uh, or more significant decline in economic activity, which you're just not seeing in the data in the US right now. It seems to be a global phenomenon, doesn't it? If you look at the Eurozone inflation picture, similar thing as well when you look at Germany, France, Spain. It's coming down, but it's still quite sticky. Yeah, and of course, that, that's more uh, persistent in the services um, side of it, which reflects a little, little bit of the fact, if you can draw a line around the fact that the labour markets are tight enough that consumers are still spending, that um, that uh, there's no there's no push, at least from a producer perspective, to reduce prices, even if the input cost, which was one of the cost push inflation, has gone out of it. Um, what often happens in this situation is producers, if they can get away with it, um, in terms of what people are prepared to pay, will continue to keep prices elevated. And I think that's the issue, is the demand's still sufficiently high enough, the labour market's still sufficiently tight, such that producers aren't being forced to reduce prices as aggressively, particularly in the services sector. And Fed officials all seem to be singing off the same hymn sheet now that basically they want to wait, make sure that inflation really is going to get down to this 2% target before they move on rate cuts. So it doesn't look like we're going to see anything before June, but the markets seem to be moving more in line with the Fed's thinking now. Yeah, I think the market's adjusted to some of the Fed thinking. And look, there is, I think there are some signs that the data is starting to soften a bit more than expected. I think the GDP figure for the US around 3.2 is, you know, is obviously well off what they had previously at 4.9%. The durable goods orders during the week were, were were weaker than expected and consumer confidence was a little weaker than expected. So some of the data is indicating that the economy's slowing, um, but it hasn't been sufficiently uh, fed through to the labour market, which really is probably the bellwether to indicate a real shift. And um, whilst the labour market stays tight, it probably means the Fed stays tight as well. Mm. And what about in um, Australia? What's the inflation picture looking like there? We had some data, didn't we, earlier this week? Looks like the the CPI still holding around the two-year low, but also similar story there, still a bit sticky? Same story, yeah. So 3.4% on the inflation expectation. Interestingly, the treasurer, who's currently the G20 in Brazil, starting to pivot some of the language around lower growth and the need potentially to frame a budget of more spending um, and in, in so much as saying that the fight of inflation continues but will reach a point probably by this time next year where they'll start to be thinking about supporting the economy uh, more so than fighting inflation. So interestingly, uh, we're seeing similar to the US maybe some softening in the data across some of the key uh, drivers. GDP's out next week, so we'll be looking at that. And there is some talk that we may have, in fact, contracted in the December quarter, um, marginally. Uh, so, yeah, that will push more towards an argument for uh, RBA to respond. But when inflation at 3.4% and your target um, below that, it makes it difficult for the RBA to respond. 
And, and across the Tasman Sea, New Zealand, they held their interest rates uh, steady this week. The cash rates at 5.5%. We like looking at the New Zealand Central Bank because they're probably one of the most hawkish central banks in the world, aren't they? They really moved pretty well first among the global, among the central banks around the world in, in raising rates. So it's interesting to see what their, their thinking is, even though obviously it's a, a small economy. Yeah, it is interesting because they, yeah, the the uh, the independence of the RBNZ is very uh, very clear. Um, they actually even discussed hiking rates at their meeting. So um, even though that didn't happen and unlikely to happen, their concern is a bit like what's the concern here in Australia, is whilst they see improvement in the trend in inflation coming down, productivity, low productivity at the in the labour market is a real concern because low productivity leads to higher unit labour costs, which means inflation is stickier. And this is an issue I think that uh, even uh, that is similar to what's happening in Australia. So I suspect RBNZ, um, a bit like the RBA, um, are in no hurry to move on rates um, short of the economy falling um, sharply lower in terms of activity. So um, I thought the comments were, um, uh, I think it was with the strong contention to hold rates um, was the language used by the RBNZ. So what does this all mean for markets? We've got a whole range of markets now, haven't we? Trading at all-time highs, the US, uh, the Euros, uh, the stock 600 in the Eurozone, Japan um, out here. Um, it seems to be a balance, doesn't it? Sort of investors sort of on the one hand looking at the better growth, and that seems to be taking sort of trumping the higher rates um, at the moment. But do you think that can continue? Yeah, well, it was it was interesting. I think over the month, I think bond yields probably really you know, probably increased twenty five basis points. Didn't have a lot of impact on the equity markets, so um, the momentum's still pretty positive for stocks, even as at record highs. It doesn't feel bubbly, for want of a better expression. Um, famous last words, of course, uh, but uh, that was a sense that the market doesn't feel, even though it's at, at record highs, in a bubble as yet. And that's because the economy is still performing pretty well. Um, the earnings results that recently came out um, were starting to look a bit stretched, but still on the whole better than expected. So on that balance, the equity investors are still fairly comfortable. And of course, there's that sense that all that cash that we know has been sitting on the sidelines and hadn't been deployed in risk. Um, some of it went into, uh, into bonds and into duration but now probably feeding through to equities on the basis that growth will persist. So it's an interesting time. You're right about balance. At the moment, it feels that people feel that the equity returns are comfortable. But it, it, that sort of means, doesn't it, that it's therefore important that the surprises keep coming to the upside on, on the growth story and on the earnings story. Now, obviously, we had that last week from NVIDIA, certainly with their sort of earnings. And, and you know, the growth is holding up. But if the stock market's going to keep going and going to be able to keep ignoring these high um, interest rates, then the, the growth story's got to hold, hasn't it? That's correct. Um and I guess the conundrum for those who use modelling to determine the value of equities is the shift driven by technology. How much of a productivity lift, despite labour productivity being poor, the technology uh, productivity dividend that's coming through AI and through technology, is it sufficient um, to sustain the growth in the in not only in the economy but also in productivity and therefore in um, prices uh, for stocks because obviously better productivity, better margins for companies. 
So it's a very interesting conundrum, and I think a lot of it has to do with an understanding around the impact of technology and the impact of AI on the growth multiples that I expected. And from a historical perspective, it's challenging, but we're in a new paradigm, you know, if you think about it that way. And I think adjusting to that would suggest that the the investors and whether they're the professional retail investors are confident that that productivity lift driven by technology is there and sustainable. Mm. Now, uh, one economy I wanted to ask you about, uh, India, one you know very well because you lived there for a while. What an astonishing fourth quarter GDP number, 8.4%. And what's more, the previous two quarters revised up to above 8% as well. I mean, this is the best growing, fastest growing economy in the world, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm not surprised. Um, one government policy um, over the uh, – you've had consistent government policy over the Modi years, um, whether you like him or not or whether you agree with the policies or not, have been consistent. That's very important at a federal level to, to, to align the macro levers to promote infrastructure spending, to really drive an India-first approach um, has worked and continues to work, and these numbers reflect that. Um, pretty much across services, financial, real estate, manufacturing, construction, all very strong. The only sector that um, uh, was of concern in the in these recent GDP numbers is the is the farm sector, which is still a key employer in India, significant uh, part of the economy. It contracted, but that was driven more by um, uh, climate, you know, El Nino and and production, and that's that's an area of concern that probably puts a little bit of a dampener on the overall number, but as a, as an economy, it continues to grow. It's, it bodes well for Modi's re-election in a couple of months' time. And I, I having lived there, I think the consistency of federal government uh, is a key part of the success story. It's not whether you like them from a point of view, a political view, but just consistency in policy has helped India enormously in the last decade. So presumably this is all good for the stock market because stock markets like consistency and stability. I, I saw a research report from a US investment bank that said the uh, the Indian market could double um, in value by 2030, which would make it about $10 um, trillion. Nevertheless, I mean, the market's hit all-time highs. But with this sort of growth, presumably this is a market that people are going to have to take more and more notice of. I think so. Um, you know, fiscal growth... Uh, is it, you know, so, I mean, think of China when we, you know, China was in that sort of second decade of the century driving at seven, seven to ten percent growth consistently. This is India now for the next uh, period, so it's no surprise that the economy will grow quite significantly. Um, there are headwinds, there are issues, but uh, reverting back to what I said, I think policy consistency at the federal level where the big levers of the big decisions are made has helped. And this is not a, a political message. It's not because you know what they've done is right or wrong. It's just that that consistency has really helped India. Um, because when you've got a, such a complex country, um, uh, you know, of a billion three hundred uh, million people, um, state governments, all sorts of cultural, <laughs> language, religious differences. Um, what has worked in this particular cycle is the is the stability at the centre. And if that can be sustained. Um, then that'll help uh, deliver what uh, the experts are thinking. Uh, and presumably the weight in global stock indices, which is still below 2%, that, that's going to have to go up, isn't it? With uh, global investors. Yeah, are and, that, have and to... that, just leads to, that just leads to more foreign capital coming in. It is difficult for foreign investors. It's not, you know, it's not a, an easy country to invest in to a large extent. But what has actually happened for India 
is that the domestic market, as it's got wealthier, has um, has increased its investment share into equities. So the retail market, which previously would have probably spent money on real estate and gold and physical commodities, are now investing much more in equities. So the domestic market is driving equity strength as much as foreign capital coming in. Toby, thanks very much indeed, and have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. And providing a view from mainland China will be Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 